<laughs> Tonight, I want to continue with something I mentioned last night about the title of this retreat being Aging, Dying, and Awakening and how these words got put together. Well, they got put together because they come out of um, the Buddhist tradition. They come out of the story of the Buddha and how it is that he, as a human, that's an old Buddhist term, um, how he, he came to awaken. And it's pretty much like how any of us might awaken. It's not like he had some special, you know, I don't know, awakening mudra or something. He went through a lot. So I'd like to tell you the story that is traditionally told in the Buddhist tradition to further add to the context of what we were doing here. It is said that the Buddha was born into a wealthy and powerful family in northern India. His father was a king. And the prophecy at his birth was that he would become either a great sage or a great king. His father, of course, wanted to keep him in the family business. And so he devised a a strategy which was to keep his son in the palace and protected from any knowledge of the real world. So he made life in the palace as desirable as possible so that his son would never be tempted to leave. He would have all of his desires met. He would not feel discontent. He would have merry companions, etc., etc. So Bhikkhu Bodhi has a, a nice way of describing this, which I want to read to you. He says, Incarcerated in the splendor of his palace, amply supplied with sensual pleasures and surrounded by merry friends, the prince did not entertain even the faintest suspicion that life could offer anything other than an endless succession of amusements and festivities. It was only on a fateful day in his 29th year when curiosity, curiosity goes a long way, when curiosity led him out beyond the palace walls and he encountered what are known as the four divine or heavenly messengers that were to change his destiny. Who were or what are these messengers? The first three were the sight of an old person, the sight of a sick person, the sight of a corpse, which taught him the shocking truths of old age, illness, and death. The fourth heavenly messenger was a wandering ascetic who revealed to him the existence of a path whereby suffering can be transcended. So that is the story, perhaps the myth, of how it was that the Buddha left his palace abandon his life in the palace out of this, because of the tremendous impact that the sight of an old person 
a sick person and a dead person had on him. This story speaks of what motivated the prince to go on his spiritual quest. The disquieting encounter with the parts of life we most fear. The parts of life that are unwanted. We perhaps can recognize this in our own lives. Here is a New Yorker cartoon. A couple meeting with the minister who is to marry them. And they're quite happy about, they look pretty happy sitting there. And the husband, the to-be, is saying to the minister, we'd like you to leave out the poor sickness and death parts. They're a little dark. We would all like to leave those out, wouldn't we? Just leave them out. Our marriage is not going to have to deal with those. We try to protect ourselves, and our culture very much colludes, knows that we want to uh, not think about those things. It colludes with our desire to look the other way, to not age, not be ill, not die. We would rather be, what, immortal? Jonathan Swift said, everyone wants to live long, but no one wants to grow old. We want to live long in this youthful, you know, unwrinkled body, right? We want to live to be 120, but in a 30-year-old body. That would be pretty cool. But to have to deal with this body? I don't know. So we can look and see how protected we have been in our own lives so far from illness or aging or death. Have you encountered any of these heavenly messengers? I suspect you have. That's probably what brought you on this retreat. I like to look at how, this, how the heavenly messengers come to appear in our lives. For some of us, the heavenly messengers may seem quite distant, quite far away. When we are young, when we are children, old people, ill people, dying people seem just not in the, they're in another category entirely. They're not of our world. When we are young, the reality of getting old is quite distant. We hear about it, but it is like news from afar, nothing to do with me and my life. There was an overheard conversation on the streets of San Francisco. Two young women, one woman, young woman, was saying to the other young woman, you know, in this world there's old people and young people. We just lucked out. I don't think I ever thought about it happening to me, that I would actually get old. Did you think about that when you were young? It just wasn't part of my, I wasn't that interested. I didn't really, it just wasn't on my radar, as they say. Later in life, we may hear of someone ill or dying, but they are unknown to us. We read about them in the paper or see them on the news. 
And then eventually one or more of the heavenly messengers appears more closely in our life. Someone we know at work, a neighbor, or an elderly relative in another city, possibly dying. We hear about this person whom we know a little bit, but nothing is asked of us and we avoid any further involvement. You know, that feeling of, oh my God, I don't have time to fly out to Chicago to visit my distant cousin, you know. So it just it's out there, but we're not really relating to it. But eventually a heavenly messenger will appear closer still, someone in your family, your partner, your parent, or child. And it directly impacts your relationship with them. Maybe it brings you closer. Maybe there's a healing that happens over some misunderstanding. Or maybe you withdraw. You don't, you just can't deal with it. It's too much. You feel overwhelmed or shut down. Or maybe there's a sudden death in the family and their sudden absence just shocks you. You were not prepared. And then finally, as we get older, and this was the shock, one of the shocks for me, you will have the most potent encounter with the heavenly messengers that you will ever have when you realize that one of them has taken up residence in your very own body. You are ill. You are feeling the effects of aging. You have a terminal diagnosis. Then the the, the messenger is no longer out here, but right here, looking out through your eyes. This happened to me here at Spirit Rock a few years ago when I because aging is, is subtle. It's not like, it's not as dramatic a change as getting ill or dying. It happens slowly, imperceptibly. I often say that aging is a very kind teacher. Why? Because it happens so slowly. Imagine if you went to sleep one night as a 23-year-old and then woke up as an 80-year-old. It would be a real shock. But... It happens slowly, so slowly that even we don't notice. Maybe our friends notice, particularly old friends that we haven't seen for a while. Or it can be the reverse. You see some old friends from high school or something, and you look at them and you think, oh my God, what's happened to them? (laughs) Little knowing that they're thinking the same thing about you. But in any case eventually you realize that, wow, I'm getting older. You see a face in the mirror and it's not your mother or your father, it's you. There you are. So I realize that to many new or younger people at Spirit Rock, young, young people come on retreat here and sometimes I'm teaching those retreats, to them, I was what, like the, the heavenly messenger of old age that the Buddha saw. 
That was a real, you know, that was a real shock. What we thought was outside of us, we will discover is actually living inside of us. And we will all become heavenly messengers of one kind or another eventually. We just will. So let me talk now about what goes on when we encounter a heavenly messenger. What went on in the Buddha's mind and heart when he encountered these messengers. What it was about them that shook him so profoundly. So when we meet a heavenly messenger, I would invite you to think perhaps the first time you saw a corpse, a dead person or a dead animal, a pet or something. Was there not shock? Was there not a feeling of discombobulation, ungroundedness, spaciness even, or fear, anguish, sorrow? What else have you noticed in encountering illness or dying? What, what comes up for you? What are the emotions? Anybody? Loss, sadness, sadness, grief, suddenness. suddenness. There's suddenness of it. Finality, Finality. Awe. awe, fascination, fascination. Disbelief. disbelief. All of these. So I want to share with you a a word in the Pali language that is a word for the, that that is a word that points to this very complex set of emotions and responses that have just been named here. We might have a little of all of these feelings. And the word is Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, Samvega in the Pali language. And I would like to read a definition of this word from a a monk, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Samvega was what the young prince Siddhartha felt on his first exposure to aging, illness, and death. It's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived, as well as an anxious sense of urgency to try to find a way out of this meaningless cycle. That's his take on this word, Samvega. Another teacher, Larry Rosenberg, puts it this way. He defines Samvega as the urgent need to practice that can grow out of a heightened sense of the perishable nature of life. A heightened sense of the perishable nature of life. It can include a real feeling of shock and a sense not only that life doesn't last forever, but also that the way we have been living is wrong. Samvega might turn our world upside down, 
sending us off to a whole new way of living. It can light a fire under our Dharma practice. We may get less caught up in money, the acquisition of goods, power, prestige, lust. Dharma teachings start to make real sense to us and we begin to live them instead of just assenting to them intellectually. Samvega can lead to a conversion of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search for that which is timeless, vast, and sacred. Gets our attention big time. It seems that this quality of Samvega is necessary in some way for us to wake up out of the trance of our immortality. We may not even have realized that in our youth we were in that trance. We kind of thought we'd live forever. We didn't actually think those words, but we actually felt somehow like we would always be here. There's a song that maybe some of you remember. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. I feel it coming together. People will see me and cry. I'm going to make it to heaven, light up the sky like a flame. I'm going to live forever. Baby, remember my name. I don't sing too well, but you remember that song? I'm going to live forever. It was all, it was everywhere. And I think we all just kind of, yeah, that's us. We're going to live forever. (laughs) So, Something has to wake us up. Something has to wake us up. So this encounter with the heavenly messengers not only activates this response, this sense of spiritual urgency even, but sends us on a search for a resolution of all this complex, stirred-up feeling. And in the story, this search is represented by the fourth of the heavenly messengers, the wandering ascetic contemplative whose demeanor and expression was peaceful and serene in the presence of the other heavenly messengers. And in Prince Siddhartha's heart, the the Buddha-to-be's heart, seeing this fourth heavenly messenger Uh, awoke in him this sense of, oh, there is a path. There is a way to make sense of this situation that I find myself in. There is a way to transform the shock of Samvega to see that aging, illness, and death are not the full story. They represent the life of the body the inevitable life of the human body. But they do not represent the life of the spirit, you could say. What in the Buddhist tradition is called the deathless, the ageless, the undying, the unborn, nibbana. 
So this, this quality that this fourth uh, messenger represents is called pasada, P-A-S-A-D-A. And it is, a, it is a quality of heart and spirit that develops as we practice. It is sometimes called confidence or faith. It's the kind of confidence that's serene and very stable. It's not an excited kind of confidence, but one that is rooted in a sense of inner knowing. So Posada, you could say, is related to faith, but instead of faith in something outside of oneself, it is faith that is rooted in one's own inner uh, knowing, one's own inner awareness that you feel gives you that sense of confidence. A personal experiential revelation that will show you the full picture. More simply, Pasada is the confidence that grows stronger as we practice. I see this all the time, even in very beginning students, you know, sometimes people come to Spirit Rock and they sit their first retreat and it's just a nightmare for them. I mean, they're just struggling the whole time and they're just having the really a bad experience. And sometimes I have thought to myself, well, we will never see that person again. And then two months later, they're back. And they're looking pretty good and they're so happy to be back and they're excited about the next retreat. And, and if you ask them, you know, what, what ha- what's up? You know, what's, what's changed? This practice has saved my life. They have developed confidence, even when it was hard, even when it didn't appear to be working. Still, something took root in them, a kind of confidence that is for them unshakable. So we will all find this in different ways, different expressions of this in our own practice. So in this tradition, the Buddhist tradition known for its emphasis on suffering and on impermanence, on emptiness, the heavenly messengers bring into focus the central understanding of our Dharma practice. What is that? That we can transform the pain, the sickness, the suffering, even death itself, into liberation. And the good news, and we'll be exploring this more as the retreat unfolds, we don't have to wait until we are ill or until we are dying to begin to taste what it means to find this liberation. There's a teacher by the name of Byron Katie. Do any of you know her? A few of you know her. Um, 
she came on the scene about 10 years ago. She's not really out of the Buddhist tradition, but, I mean, she doesn't come out of the Buddhist tradition, but her understanding is quite awake. And so whenever she teaches, I listen to her. And one time she said this. She said, people always say to me, I want to be conscious when I die. Then she says, that's hopeless. Even wanting to be conscious 10 minutes from now is hopeless. (laughs) You can only be conscious now. You can only let go now. Everything you want is here in this moment. So this is where we start our training for preparing to die or for working with illness or any other thing that may come along as we get older. This is, this is where it begins. This is where it ends, right here. Mindfulness teaches us how to be present, how to learn to let go now. But, of course, we don't want to let go. We have a lot of resistance to letting go. You know, to come on retreat, as you all have done, and most of you have sat other retreats before this, you know how much letting go is necessary just to come on retreat. You know, to pack up your belongings, to come out here, to let go of your coffee or your favorite desserts or all the things, the comforts of home that are not available to you here, not to mention the electronics and your dear ones, your friends, your pets, your, you know, email, whatever it is you long for. It's a lot of letting go to be on retreat, and it's purposeful. We're, not, we're, we're here to learn something that we can't learn any other way, and that is through letting go. So in the same spirit as going on a retreat, what's really helpful about the heavenly messengers is that we lose our choice about whether to let go or not. The heavenly messengers make it much harder, perhaps impossible, to hold on to our old habits, distractions, and defenses. Aging is in our face. It's not going to go away no matter how many creams you buy or whatever, facelifts, all that. It's still going on. So is illness. It's not going to go away just because we think positively or we want it to go away. It's not the way it works. So is dying. It's in our face. No way out, no escape. So... It's our choice. Hold on. Let me think. Hold on. Hold on. Or let go. Let go. And practice, of course, gives us many opportunities to let go. I imagine many of you have had, even today, many opportunities for letting go of a preference, of a mean thought about somebody, of a, you know, uh, I want that bell to ring. Take another breath, just relax. Maybe the bell will ring in about 10 minutes. 
You know, you get to let go. Even coming back to the breath is a training in letting go. The moment we suggest, when you notice your thinking, leave that thinking and return. Remember that you're here. Remember the body, remember the breath. That's letting go. It's part of the training. And what do we learn from letting go? We learn something from letting go that cannot be learned any other way. And that is a life-changing discovery that happened to me on my first retreat, which was a long, I think of my first retreat, it was actually my second retreat, but it was a long retreat. It was a three-month silent retreat in 1980 with Joseph Goldstein, Jack Hornfield, Sharon Salzberg. They were my first teachers. And they were hippies. And they were living in this abandoned, practically an abandoned building out in, the <laughs> out in the countryside. But there was a lot of excitement about what they were teaching. And I had friends who were going. So we all, you know, we went and I found myself in this place. And I had a lot of doubts. I didn't like the place. It was really uncomfortable. My room was really shabby. Oh boy, these rooms here look like, you know, the Ritz compared to what we were dealing with. Bare room, foam mat on the floor, peeling wallpaper, cockroaches. I mean, you know, for a spoiled child from New York, it was, it was roughing it. So I, um, and then these teachers, I wasn't so sure about them. I liked them. They were very likable, but what were they up to? And so it was hard, and I had a lot of doubts. And, but then there was this moment, one of those retreat moments that changed your life, where I woke up in this room one morning, and I was happy. I was just suddenly so happy. I just felt great. I mean, it wasn't happiness about anything. It was just, I felt so good. I felt so clear. I felt so light. I felt so confident, you could say. And I thought, where did that come from? You know, I thought before then that happiness was dependent on the externals. And that really taught me that it's about letting go. Oh, I've been practicing letting go for two weeks. That's why something new, a new experience called happiness was actually given the space to arise. So that's one small example. You probably have your own examples. But this, for me, was a new understanding. I had a PhD in psychology by then. Nobody, nobody, nobody had ever told me there was any value in letting go. Nobody. It was all about more, getting more. So that was a revelation. Achan Shah said, take the feeling of letting go as your refuge. Take the feeling of letting go as your refuge. We don't know it's a refuge until we 
begin to experience what happens when we let go. Of course, letting go, it happens in so many different ways, and it's, you know, we, there's several Dharma talks on letting go, but um, it, it certainly brings often feelings of loss, of grief, of relinquishing something that we love or value a person or a possession. But that feeling of loss and grief is not the whole story. So I want to read a, a poem I seem to read every time I teach called One Art. It's by Elizabeth Bishop, and it's about loss. She writes, The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing is not too hard to master, though it may look like like a disaster. You know, it feels like that when we lose something. Ah, oh, what a disaster. Can you relate to that? Nod your heads if you're still with me. I'm not sure what's <laughs> happening out here. Yeah. It's not... It feels like a disaster. And then what happens? And as we age, we, we get to see this part of life. It's not over. We lost something. It doesn't mean our life is over. It's not over, is it? It continues. Our life continues. And in that continuation, of continuing to unfold, what then comes? What comes after the loss and the grief and the sorrow? We don't know, but things come that we could not have predicted. Just like we were saying in the inquiry this afternoon, there's uncertainty, there's unpredictability. But life brings with it things that we could not have imagined, we could not have predicted, and some of them are so much better than anything we would have imagined. I want to read a poem by... uh, Milos, the poet Milos, he wrote this at the age of 94. In advanced age, my health worsening, I woke up in the middle of the night 
and experienced a feeling of happiness so intense and perfect that in all my life I had only felt its premonition. And there was no reason for it. It didn't obliterate consciousness. The past which I carried was still there, together with my grief. And it was suddenly included, was a necessary part of the whole. As if a voice were repeating, you can stop worrying now. Everything happened just as it had to. You did what was assigned to you and you are not required anymore to think of what happened so long ago. The peace I felt was a closing of accounts and was connected with the thought of death. The happiness on this side was like an announcement of the other side. I realized that this was an undeserved gift and I could not grasp by what grace it was bestowed on me. It's a mystery, isn't it? We're walking into a complete mystery. The mystery of consciousness itself. But here's what we learn from practice. We learn that when we sit down on the cushion, we, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know in, the, in, in right now, do you know, in 12 minutes, you know, what, what will be going on? And we have no idea. But we, we have confidence in the unfolding of life as we sit there on the cushion. We develop confidence that we can meet whatever arises. How beautiful. That's what we take with us into these seemingly scary experiences of illness and dying. We have this sense that we can meet whatever arises. And that's a beautiful thing. So I'd like to read a few more pieces. One is by Steve Jobs, and many of you have heard this, but it seems kind of in the territory where we are tonight. And this was written um, during the time when he knew he was dying. And he wrote this, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, These things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. No reason not to follow your heart. So it was mentioned this afternoon that it's a surprise perhaps to us when we discover that we're not alone in our 
sense of vulnerability and our sense of sorrow or confusion even. We're not alone in these feelings. We're not alone in our suffering about getting older. This is a universal shared experience. It's important to say that in this space and for you to hear it so that when, as we go through this week together, this is less the kind of retreat where you're all alone by yourself on your cushion with your personal karmic knot. No, this is a shared experience. We all have different ways it will express. We're not all ill. We're not all even that old, but we share birth and death. The life of a human body includes this aging, illness, and dying. So I want to close this talk with a piece that was written by Shyla Catherine from her book, Wisdom Wide and Deep. And it's a little reflection for you to take into your practice. It goes like this. You know that all beings that are born will die. All beings wish for happiness and wish to avoid suffering. Can you live viewing all beings as friends who share birth, aging, sickness, and death? Contemplate this one sentence. All beings are my friends who share birth, aging, sickness, and death. All beings are my friends who share birth, aging, sickness, and death. With each contact as we go through the day, be they with bugs, neighbors, children, birds, be it the sound of people passing on the road, the awareness of passengers and airplanes overhead, memories of people, portraits in the newspaper, contemplate this one sentence. You are my friend who shares birth, aging, sickness, and death. We're all in this together. Aren't we lucky? That's what Sangha is, being in things together. So that's all I have to say tonight. And thank you for your attention. And let's just close our eyes for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.